0: You are listening to The Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with The Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you for the second time this week. And this week, or this episode, I should say, is uh, another one of these back-to-school episodes in which I try to kind of get back to basics, tell you. So I've talked about asset protection. I've talked about estate planning. This week, um, on on this special series, I want to talk to you a little bit about my views on asset allocation. Now, again, these are my views, and they are you know they're not probably uh, you know conventional and they're non traditional, shall we say? As you know, I mean, we talked earlier in the week with Zolfielli, who's a who's a uh, you know very high level financial advisor. Um, as of now, I don't actually use a financial advisor because well. I don't think I could take anybody's advice, you know, and, and and probably put it to use. I have very strong opinions on what I want to do and uh, what, what, you know, what I want to do and how I want to allocate my money. And if a traditional uh, financial advisor, and I'm not talking about myself here, but if a traditional advisor saw my portfolio, they probably pass out, you know. But then again, the traditional financial advisor makes a lot less money than I do. So why would I trust them anyway, right? That's kind of the way I see it. Maybe I'm a little stubborn, but that's the way I see it. Um, again, you see, I'm not a traditional retail investor. It's not like I make money from you know one job and, um, you know, spend all my time there, 100% of my time there and, and don't have time to think about my own uh, portfolio. That's not what I do. I think about my portfolio all the time. So, but if you are one of those people who spends all your time thinking about being a doctor or being uh, you know a lawyer or doing something else then maybe maybe you should uh maybe you should talk to somebody else and and help them advise you on the bigger picture but again investing is my primary job and, that, and that's where i think it's uh you know i feel safe doing it myself you know i'm a do-it-yourself guy when it comes to my money not really when it comes to just about anything else i'm not really a do-it-yourself guy but when it comes to making decisions about allocations and investments and how to protect my assets and how to do estate planning i take the advice of people and then i just i i you know make the decisions myself and in many cases like i said it's a very good idea to have someone to help you with uh, make your investment decisions but you just you really do if you're going to go down that route just make sure you have somebody really competent that said i Again, I have been asked by you, um, the audience, on a number of occasions to circle back to my own personal investment philosophy and also, you know, some of my own asset allocation decisions. So, here it goes. Let's start with broad strokes, okay? Principle one, I never let money sit in the bank. I always deploy it as soon as possible. Why? Well, for a number of reasons, actually. The first one, well, Robert Kiyosaki says it best, and he's got a way with words, right? And he always says, savers are losers. Um, and what does he mean by that? Of course, he's, you know, he's not trying to insult you. Although, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. He's not trying to insult you. What he's getting at here is that letting money sit in a checking or savings account, it's not going to get you anywhere. You are pretty much guaranteeing that you're going to lose money. Why? take a look at what kind of interest rates you are getting. Okay. Take a minute. Look at your interest rates. Now look at the inflation rate. So money in the bank is essentially guaranteeing loss of buying power. And I don't want to guarantee losses. So I don't keep more than a couple of months of living expenses in the bank at one time. Now, this might be different for you, by the way. I I have at least three, you know, Major streams of income at any one time. That's my goal, at least. So I'm not quite as worried about losing a job and all of a sudden having no money coming in. Okay. Now, as a corollary to what I'm saying here about interest rates and not getting enough from the bank, I encourage you to go back and um, look at uh, an episode that I did with my friend Peter Arts. That's episode 368 called Your Bank Probably Owes You Money. Okay. And, and, and that was, um, that was an episode where Pete uh, was talking about how there's all these banks out there who know they should be paying you more interest because interest rates are higher right now, but they aren't, and they're not going to unless you ask them to. But um, it's still not going to beat inflation usually. So, you know, check that out. Uh, but in the meantime, savers are losers, concept. And so you're losing money in the bank. That's that's one reason to deploy uh, right away. Why else do I deploy capital right away other than the fact that I don't like mo- losing money in the bank? Well, people often talk about wanting to diversify their investments, right? And I'm all for that. But diversifying investments also means diversifying the timing of investments. I've been investing for several years, primarily in real estate limited partnerships, primarily in multifamily. So that part of it, you could say, well, you're not that diversified. Well, true, but I am diversified by asset. I'm diversified by, you know, locations of those assets and when I invested in those uh, opportunities. So even in times like now where we're hitting some rough patches because of interest rates, my overall portfolio is actually fine. I'm taking my lump like a lot of you, but the overall picture is fine. And as long as I keep investing into opportunities as they come my way, and I don't sit on my hands and worry and 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 be fearful, I believe that I will continue to do fine and quite well, in fact. Um, by the way, in the traditional investing world, that concept is called dollar cost averaging, right? Basically, what they tell you is, you know, just keep investing in markets with, you know, just keep putting money in the markets every month, every paycheck, whatever they say. Uh, Do it consistently without trying to time it. That's actually pretty good advice. And that's essentially what I've done in the alternative space. Um, And I must tell you, it seems to be working quite well. It really does. But again, I've been doing this for uh, some years now. And, uh, and I, I really believe that makes a huge difference. Of course, this approach does require overcoming emotions a fair amount because sometimes you just don't want to invest because you're afraid. And I totally get that. But in my experience, that's exactly the wrong time to hold on to your money tightly, right? So in the mathematical wealth formula that I talk about, which is wealth is equal to mass times velocity, uh, and uh, you know, and then all of that multiplied by leverage, this is uh, the mass part. Mass is like how much money you put in to invest. You're not. Doesn't matter if you're going to get a return. What your return potential is if you don't invest in the first place, right? So, so this is this is that principle, right? You got to invest. You got to keep investing. You don't. You don't just stop and and, and sit on the, you, There's always something you can invest in. Deploy the capital and get it out of your hands, sometimes it may be, you know, it could, it could, hey, listen, it could be government bonds. I don't care, whatever. Get it out there, though. Don't leave it in the bank. But getting back to that equation, the wealth uh, formula, the, the uh, mathematical part of that, uh, wealth times, I say, velocity. Velocity is how quickly you get your money back on, uh, in your hands after you invest it. And so, really, that's uh, the same as ROI or the percentage uh, of, uh of return or whatever you want to call it, right? The internal rate of return. You want that to be good. And then there's leverage, right? Now, leverage is a double-edged sword. And I I will tell you that I am a big fan of leverage. You know that. But I'll also tell you that it is because of leverage and floating rates that, you know, that I took some hits recently. And and I'm sure you did, too. Does that mean I won't use leverage again? Absolutely not, Investing for higher returns often, you know, it requires higher levels of leverage. Now, maybe you you can certainly moderate that the, the amount of leverage you have and those kinds of things. And, um, you know, but but again, with regard to leverage, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think it's virtually impossible to be a retail investor and get rich off your investments without the use of leverage. Right? I really believe that. So it depends what you're trying to do. Um, you know, I I want to I want big wins. Want big wins, and I've had big wins. And even if I have some losses, because in investments and investing, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You have to win more than you lose. But as long as you keep doing that, um, those big wins will really make a big difference. Now, what happened recently? Um, You know, variable rates. The issue of variable rates is a slippery one. In hindsight, I wish I'd only invested in in primarily fixed debt opportunities last couple years. But then again, I had no idea inflation would hit us so hard and that the Fed would raise rates so aggressively. And I don't think anyone did. So hindsight is 2020. 20. No investors always right, but you have to learn from your experiences and move forward. And for me that might mean, well, hey, maybe uh uh maybe maybe for a while let's stick to some fixed debt, right? And maybe especially when we don't know if if rates are going to continue to go up or, or if they're going to tick down, whatever, maybe just take the risk off the table. And, and and if that means lower returns later, then that's fine, right? But these are things you learn and you continue to invest along the way. Now, um, I said earlier, I do not believe that it is possible to make a big change in your portfolio, like one that's life-changing in any sort of way, like getting rich from your investments. Is really not possible, so much without leverage and all you have to do is you just go look at your 401k okay how much has your money grown over the past decade and don't include any matches from your employer okay whenever I ask people to do that they go look at it and they're just like I'm not growing at all right I mean so anyway that's what my point is there leverage is a little risky sure it can be but let me quote the great NFL coach Bruce Arians who said no risk it no biscuit. And I think that's true. Now let's uh, let's talk about the nitty gritty. You know, the what percent are you invested in this and what percent of that? That's what people want to know. And I think it's, uh, let me preface by saying that um, my personal investment philosophy strongly reflects my personal values. And for me, Let me start with the most important thing in the world to me, which is my children and their future. So if something happens to me, I want to make sure they are okay. And even if I screw everything else up, all of my investments, my businesses, whatever, and I drop dead, they'll be just fine. And because of that, because of that philosophy and that desire, I have a lot of life insurance. Now, it's not all permanent by any means. I have a stupid amount of convertible term life insurance, okay? And that's why I'm frequently having the Wealth Formula Banking guys on the show, by the way, because I do believe in this stuff. Uh, Structured correctly, various permanent life insurance policies can be not only extremely safe, but quite profitable, right? So it's, it's not like you're, putting this stuff away and it's not something that you can access in the future. These are investment vehicles that can be tremendous uh, as retirement planning pieces. Now, for me, I'm using them primarily as estate planning things, but being able to multiply them with things like the wealth accelerator, which is a type of premium finance policy, like you, you can really ramp up the amount of money in, in those things really fast. So anyway, if you're curious about what I'm talking about with the wealth accelerator and stuff, go to wealthformulabanking.com and check it out. Now, when you watch the webinar, I think it'll be very clear why this strategy, for me at least, makes a lot of sense. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. But I, so, um, so, so how am I doing this specifically? How am I doing this in the sense that, like, you know, am I just going out and just buying uh, only life insurance? No, not at all. As I mentioned before, I have a ton of convertible life insurance that's pretty cheap, right? Now in case you don't know what I mean by convertible life insurance is, it's uh, it's it's a type of term life insurance, right? The cheap stuff, but you pay a little bit extra for the option uh, to convert it over to permanent uh, permanent life insurance in the future. So basically what you're doing with convertible is you're locking in your health status today in case you want to buy more permanent insurance in the future without having to go uh, through underwriting. So if you're 35 years old and you you want to make sure that you could potentially buy more insurance, even if all of a sudden you develop a heart problem when you're 45, you don't have to worry. You get blocked in your 35-year-old health. That is convertible term, and I think it's fantastic. So every year, what I do is I convert a chunk of this convertible insurance into another one-time payment for a uh, wealth accelerator policy. Now, that gives me a lot of flexibility. So what am I doing every time I'm getting uh, chunked into this wealth accelerator policy? That is stuff that's banked away definitely for A, either I blow every penny and you know then I just live off the wealth accelerator um, and or... I'm putting away money for my kids, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm gone. So that, that's what I love about it. Now it's not a huge amount that I'm converting, right? Like I have all this convertible and every year I convert maybe five, 10% of my, you know, using five to 10% of my investable assets per year going in that direction. But it really adds up, can really add up, uh, over time. And again, this stuff is extraordinarily safe. So it's, something i want to talk about even though i'm talking about again five ten percent i think in this situation it's it's you know the more conservative you are like the the higher percent you go on that and uh and and that's 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 basically what i do with that small amount but again that small amount because of the premium finance turns into a, a a meaningful amount of of safe money now some of you have been brainwashed into thinking permanent life insurance is not valuable right? That's the, uh, that is the, you know, Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey school of thought. And I used to think the same thing until I realized everyone rich around me when I was, you know, when I had no money, when I was just starting out, everyone around me had premium finance, permanent life insurance policy. So I'm like, what the heck? Why, why do the rich people have it? And these other people, I was finishing residency and all these know-it-all, uh, you know, fellow doctors around me, the young guys who thought they all knew it, they, they were all telling me it was dumb. So, who am I going to believe? The rich guys or these guys who are working their butts off just out of residency? Well, I believe the rich guys. Okay. So, anyway, going back to that insurance stuff is, is something I believe in. It's where I start because my personal values are my kids first. Go to wealthformulabanking.com, look at some of the options there. But the thing that I really like there is the wealth accelerator. Sort of is is pretty a pretty sweet deal. Anyway, so now for the heart and soul of the portfolio, it's real estate. Again, I would say this makes up about 75% of my invested assets, specifically multifamily real estate. Why? Because people need to live somewhere. And it has such a wonderful track record over a period of time. Listen, the problems real estate investors are having in this space right now are. Isn't, they're not because of real estate. It's because of debt, right? Um, people still need to leave, live somewhere. Uh, you know, we're, Dante, my partner with Toro and I, have increased net operating incomes on properties of over 115% in just one year. Net operating about 115%. Now, we can't do that. We couldn't have done that without solid continuing rent growth. That's what we've got. Uh, we we wouldn't be able to raise net operating income by 115 percent otherwise. But on the other hand, mortgages have gone way up with interest rates, right? So what does that mean? Does that mean that it's the end of value add real estate? No, no, not at all. Interest rates are an, an interest rates are just an underwriting variable. Okay, they're like the goalposts that you use when you're underwriting the market's going to adjust to this. You know, people made money in real estate in the 1980s, soaring interest rates. They made stupid money with zero interest rates for the past 10, 15 years. And when things kind of uh, reset, the new normal environment, people get used to that. The markets reset. People make a lot of money in real estate again, right? And you don't need rates to go down. In fact, we're actually at historical interest rates right now. I mean, it's normal to have 5 6% interest rates. If you go back 20 years ago, that's where we were. In other words, if you look at interest rates right now, they are actually not high if you take in the history of interest rates in this country. So what hurt us is not the absolute value of rates But what happened was a black swan event of extreme acceleration of interest rates because of extreme levels of sudden inflation. You know, following COVID, another black swan event, and, you know, just ridiculous amounts of money that was sent into the economy. And then all of a sudden you've got these supply and demand issues because of supply chains. I mean, this is not you know, all this stuff is uh is not normal, right? But anyway, it's not real estate's fault, right? It's an economy and sometimes it's gonna happen. And we don't know exactly what's gonna happen with rates right now. I mean, honestly, I know a lot of people are saying, Oh, rates are gonna go down. I don't know. I, I you know, if you go back and listen to the interview with Zolfi, I agree with him. I don't I don't really see why the Fed would necessarily decrease rates. I mean, I don't think they're going to increase rates a lot. I don't, you know, especially if inflation continues to be sort of, um, you know, controlled and everything like that. But why why would they go down uh, on rates just because things are, you know, things are that because inflation's slowing down? I, I don't really see why they would do that. Um, anyway, so what do you do with that? It's probably good to look at fixed rates right now, right? Pretty, pretty much. uh Maybe it's a, you know, you could, you could even just say for yourself, and, and I I won't lock myself into this, but you could say, well, I'm only going to do fixed rates from now on. I think it's not an unreasonable thing to do. I mean, fixed rates uh, only, of course, that means that sometimes you are going to lose some profits if rates go down. And that's why a lot of times you're not, you don't see locked rates. Another reason you don't see locked rates is because there's often really big pre uh, prepayment penalties in these, um, you know, in this size of debt. So if the plan is not to hold a property for very long, a lot of times uh, you, you don't lock, you don't lock in those rates. And also bridge loans. That's another place where you really can't get uh, fixed debt. Anyway, you may say to yourself, hey, I'm, I'm all good. I only want to deal with fixed rates for now. And that's pretty reasonable though. And I will tell you for right now, that's that's my rule. I'm only doing fixed, uh, fixed debt for right now. But, uh, as far as my feelings on multifamily real estate in general, I am still all in. And I got to tell you, this is important because, you know, uh, I, I mean, it's how my dad made all his money in the eighties. It's how I built my wealth. I mean, this is, this is not changing. Donald Trump made his money in real estate. How many billionaires are there? Made their money in real estate. That's you know, it's it's still, in my opinion, the best game in town. There's simply no other asset class which is with, with as much general stability and profit potential over the long term, and nothing comes even close to matching tax benefits as well. By the way, this year still 80% bonus depreciation, and um, we have some stuff coming. Through the pipeline there on uh, Investor Club. So go check it out if you're in need of depreciation. So, bottom line is, I'm eager to get into the opportunities, you know, m- more real estate opportunities now. And I'm going to continue with at least 70% dedicated uh, to the multifamily real estate space. Now, I should point out that I'm, uh, I, have a secondary motive in real estate as well. I, uh, when I file my taxes, I am a real estate professional. And we've talked about that a number of times on this show. But basically, I'm incentivized to invest as much money back into real estate as possible because a good chunk of that money essentially ends up being a write-off for me. So like this year, 80% bonus depreciation. If I write a check. Let's say I wrote a check for $100,000, there's a decent chance that I'm going to get a K-1 that is close to uh, minus $80,000, and I can use that. Uh, you could use that against any other uh, passive income if you are not a, a real estate professional, but I can use that against any income. So anyway, that makes it even easier to invest in real estate for me, frankly. It, it's kind of a no-brainer. And in investing and that actually makes it very hard for me to invest in other things. You know, like say I wanted to uh, go to something asymmetric and play around with it, you know, like a, a Bitcoin type thing or something like that. It's like, well, not only me, I'm basically in my mind, I'm paying for those investments with uh, uh, and, and, uh, almost double for those investments because I'm not going to get a tax benefit from them. So anyway, well, so um, what about everything else? Well, about 10 about 10 to 15% of my portfolio. I know this is not all adding exactly to 100. I don't know where we are, but 10 to 15% of my portfolio is invested in other cash flowing assets, such as the uh, WF Velocity ATM fund. You can find that at WFVelocity.com, by the way. That is, uh, that's uh, my fund that has actually been uh, given a stamp of approval. I shouldn't say stamp of approval, technically. I guess it's just, but it's uh, gone through a significant, uh, I should call it a rectal exam uh, from a broker-dealer, Zolfi Ali, uh, in terms of vetting it out. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and anyway, came through with flying colors, and that's now available. So, yeah, so stuff like ATMs, other alternatives uh, that come through our investor platform and through broker, the broker-dealer so that's, that makes up about 10, 15, you know, may see 10%. Then there's, there's about 10%. Uh, then there's about a 10% of my portfolio that is dedicated to the kind of silly fun stuff that you would call asymmetric return opportunities. Now, what does that mean? It means super high risk, super high reward, stuff like cryptocurrency with, massive fluctuations and we're going to have a episode uh, where one of my one of the one of the uh, projects I like Hedera we're going to have an update with Mance Harmon next week. I was one of the early investors on that. Anyway, it's this kind of stuff. You know, asymmetric investing is the kind of stuff that you can you can lose it all or it could potentially and fundamentally change your position in Society, right? I mean, it, it make you. It can make you a lot richer, a never another level of rich than you are today. Which, if you're not rich, it can make you rich, and if you're already rich, it can make you super rich. Um. So why do I use that number ten percent there for me? Well, I feel like I can afford it. All right. Now it's a gamble, and I'm, uh, I'm willing to make that gamble because if it's ten percent and that goes, you know, the way sometimes cryptocurrency goes, and I pick the right project, it could be, holy cow, it could be a big number. Yeah, so, so that's why I do that, right? Now, this number can go up or down a lot based on how much money you have after you pay your bills. If you don't have much to invest, asymmetric investing should probably be pretty low on your priority list, right? On the other hand, if you make a lot more money than you need to live. It might make sense to take some of those chances and allocate a little bit more uh, to this bucket. Take some chances. No risk it. No biscuit. Okay, that's pretty much it for the asset allocation side for me. Now, again, I'm not telling you what to do, but that's what I'm doing. And uh, if it makes sense for you, then hey, do it. But you know, if you need to consult with somebody, you could you know you could call Zolfi or or something, and get a personal investing plan. Get somebody to quarterback things for you. That's cool too. Okay, but that's what I do. So there's one last thing I want to talk about, though, and I didn't mention as part of my portfolio per se, but maybe I should have. I don't know. Maybe I should have, but for some reason, I don't like necessarily look at it just as a, an investment. But I spend a lot of money on my entrepreneurial endeavors. You see, I actually have uh, multiple companies that produce steady cash flow. And what happened was I, I made a decision about 10 years ago that I would always strive to have at least three solid sources of income at any given time in In that sense where like any one of them could potentially at least just, you know, pay for my living costs. That's, that was my goal. And um, I've been able to do that most of the time. Because you see, the reason I do that is I'm, I'm generally kind of a paranoid guy. And when things are going well, I'm actually planning for the next time things take a turn for the worse. Uh, I think it was because about 10 or 11 years ago, I was, you know, I was a one hit wonder. Okay. I had this highly successful business. It was in the cosmetic surgery space. Uh, and then I was, you know, I was just crushing it. And then over the course of a couple months, you I know, I, I bought a house, I, I had bought a, a, um, a building that was under construction for my practice, and and all of a sudden the economy got really, really slow right before, uh, I think it was Obama's re-election year, like that October, like everybody stopped buying, and boom, like I felt like I was in big trouble. I had all these bills to pay, and I all of a sudden was wondering where I was going to get money for my mortgage because I had like negative $200,000 that year, that, that month, Uh, from my business. So I was sick to my stomach because I frankly was worried about how I was going to pay for anything. So luckily, you know, luckily I made it through that year. Okay. But I told myself I would never, ever, ever be in that position of single point failure again. I want to emphasize those uh, three words because, oh man, people don't think about it, but it's everywhere. Single point failure. You know, your job, if you got nothing else, if you got nothing else, it's, and you get fired. That was single point failure, right? So, anyway, I'm always thinking about my next business opportunity. And I spend quite a bit of money every year trying things out. I really do. Now, I know that you might be employed and you probably, you know, you're telling me, oh, come on, I don't have time for that sort of thing. But at the very least, I would highly suggest you. Start to like maybe play around with some side hustles. I know it doesn't sound realistic, but I do know a number of people who've actually turned side hustles into income that exceeded or at least came close to their paychecks from work. I mean, it, it can happen, right? And it can be really fun. So, uh, so think about it. Think about, you know, what you would do if you lost your job or if you're, you know, uh, even worse, if you're a business person, okay? Here's the thing. If you're a business person, I know there's a lot of business people out there. I urge you not to put all of your money back into your own business. I'm not saying not to invest in your business, but don't put every dime in there. I don't know how many people I know who do that. It's kind of crazy, right? It's Talk about single point failure. Use some of it to create wealth outside of your business. And again, avoid single point failure. All right. Well, Anyway, that's it for me on this uh, back-to-school episode of Wealth Formula Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, certainly, uh, let me know. Shoot me an email, bucketwealthformula.com. I'm sure I'll get some snide remarks. I've been getting a lot of sort of snarky remarks lately. I don't know why. But I think that I seem to have gotten a, a bunch of new people recently who are of the school of snark, and, and they like to, they like to be mean to me for some reason. I don't understand why they listen to me. Anyway, uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.